Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshall, and today we are going to talk to Peter McKenna on the foreign policy of Stephen Harper's conservative government from 2006 until 2015. Peter McKenna is currently professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Prince Edward Island. He has written extensively on the recent history and politics of Canadian foreign policy. He brought together a range of scholars in a retrospective examination of the foreign policy actions of the Harper government and the extent to which, if at all, uh, that government broke with the historical trajectory of Canadian foreign policy. The result was Harper's World, the politicization of Canadian foreign policy 2006 to 2015, edited by Peter and published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, glad to be here. Finally, your book reflects the general theme of the essays, but politicization can mean different things to different people. What do you mean by this phrase? And to what extent was the Harper government any different than the administrations that preceded it before 2006 and those uh, the Trudeau administration since 2015 in the ways that foreign policy was politicized by those administrations? I mean, the the main thrust of the book is is the the overarching argument is that um, it's it's not new for Canadian governments to politicize the making and conduct and formulation of Canadian foreign policy. But what was new about the Harper government was that I thought that it it had upped it significantly um, in terms of the politicization of uh, his foreign policy. And what, what, what I mean by politicization is that his, his approach to foreign policy was very much based on the politics, the domestic politics of his foreign policy decisions. In other words, what, what were the vote-getting importance of his foreign policy decisions? What were the political returns uh, on his foreign policy, and how did his foreign policy bolster the Conservative Party's political interests, its electability, uh, its its ability to be re-elected, um, its ability to cater to the base of the Conservative Party. So, so for me, it was all about looking at Stephen Harper and his very politicized nature, but as a political animal, what was first and foremost in Harper's mind, I think, and I argue this, is that he he was constantly thinking about the political ramifications and implications of his decisions. What what would the impact of those decisions be in terms of the, the ability of the Conservative Party to either gain power or to hold on to power? Uh, in other words, put it put differently, you know, h- how do I use foreign policy as a means of continuing continuing to get reelected in Canadian federal elections? And it, it, it's not that other previous governments had done that. It's just that the extent and the scope 
and the manner in which Stephen Harper did it, um, it, se it seemed to be significantly more noticeable and apparent than, than previous governments, particularly with respect to the diaspora, where he, if you looked at Canada's policy towards Israel, for instance, or even Iran, um, or even the Ukrainian population, decisions were made, in my view, not so much because they made sense from a foreign policy standpoint, but they made sense in terms of uh, uh, collecting and achieving and securing the votes of those individual diaspora, which, which would help the conservative government get reelected. Well, let's talk about Stephen Harper himself. As you point out in your preface, Harper did not have a strong grasp of political geography, international diplomacy, and global security issues. So how did this relative inexperience influence the Conservative Party's platforms uh, for the 2004 and 2006 election campaigns? Yeah. So I, I again, um, it seemed to me that that the the, the lack of uh, experience in, in in terms of international politics and the fact that Harper uh, had had almost no travel outside of uh, of the country, and you know by training he was essentially an econo economist and he had focused mostly on on the inner workings of the Reform Party and then the Conservative Party. Um, and so his whole focus uh, was his, the way he looked at politics was basically through domestic politics as opposed to looking at uh, international or, or global politics. And I think what happened there was that if you looked at those initial 2004-2006 campaign documents, most of the focus there were warmed over ideas from the, from the Reform Party, grassroots ideas which were... Uh, then sort of massaged and turned into Conservative Party uh, foreign policy objectives and, 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 and goals. Uh, but they were basically pretty straightforward, pretty simplistic, you know, sort of uh, we, we need to do a better job of strengthening the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, you know, we need to focus on uh, promoting international trade and particularly free, free trade um, uh, uh, agreements. Um, and we need to have more of a uh, principled um, foreign policy, at least in the eyes of, of, of Stephen Harper. And, and I think it's important to mention here, Greg, that, that um, you know, Harper's fingerprints are all over these foreign policy uh, objectives and aims. I mean, he's the one who held the pen. Um, it, it, it needed to have his approval uh, be, before the Canadian government, before any of any minister in his government would would move forward. So there's no doubt in my mind that, and that's not unusual for a Canadian prime minister to put their stamp on foreign policy. But again, Harper put a very unique and different stamp on the foreign policy, and that is it wasn't going to be a foreign policy that was based primarily on, on a clear-eyed assessment of Canadian interests and objectives, whether those are uh, sort of offensive or defensive interests. To me, it was more about how are these foreign policy initiatives going to play in terms of my domestic popularity? How, how are my... Uh, initiatives in the foreign policy domain going to impact the base of the Conservative Party. So it was all about politics, political calculations, electoral uh, results, uh, playing to the to, to, to the base 
So it was all domestic politics 24-7. And I, I just, to me, it really is stuck out um, as being unique, unique and different from, from previous Canadian prime ministers. Now, one of the areas that he was, um, he held a similar perspective was to prime ministers such as John Diefenbaker, Pierre Trudeau, and Brian Mulroney, who all came into office also quite skeptical about the foreign affairs bureaucracy in Ottawa, as you uh, put out in your chapter. But unlike these previous prime ministers, Harper's skepticism never abated. Uh, in fact, in uh, your chapter three, you illustrate how this bureaucracy was openly denigrated by Harper and how Harper actually distanced it from policymaking. Why did he do this? Why did he go to that extent to do this? You know, we're, we're, I, th I think I think some scholars are still trying to figure out the why, um, because it didn't seem to make sense when you have a professional bureaucracy, a foreign policy establishment um, that has been dealing with these issues uh, uh, for decades, why you wouldn't want to take advantage of that. And you're, you're right to point out that that, you know, Mulroney came in, was very suspicious of uh, the Department of External Affairs then, uh, going on to f Foreign Affairs, now Global Affairs. But, but, but Mulroney was, was smart enough to, to, to realize that he could use the, the foreign policy bureaucracy as an instrument to, to carry out his foreign policy and to rely on their advice and their expertise. And, and that's where Harper was really quite different than Mulroney and previous Canadian prime ministers. He, he didn't trust the foreign policy establishment, but he, but he almost resented the foreign policy establishment. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I think there was a sense in his mind um, that the Canadian diplomatic corps, foreign service officers are the sort of the spoiled child, the spoiled children of, of Canadian foreign policy and Canadian politics and Canadian government. And I, I think there was also in his brand of, of, of conservatism, there was sort of this sort of anti-elitism. And I think he thought that that was, uh, that, was that, that there were a number of elites who, who, who thought uh, that, that they were uh, pretty significant, pretty important, and had, had this sense of self-importance that they shouldn't have. And so I think there was some bitterness, there was some resentment, there was some lack of trust there. Also, you know, I mean, foreign affairs, the, the foreign policy establishment has long been known as sort of Pearsonian internationalists. And I think, I, I think Harper sort of rejected that uh, approach. That, 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 you know, that, that he, he took an approach which seriously challenged and dismissed the importance and significance of multilateralism in the conduct of Canadian foreign policy. And when you have foreign policy officials who have sort of been schooled on that way of thinking, I, I think Harper said, look, I don't think there's much that they could offer me uh, from, from, from a policy standpoint, because I, don't, I, I fundamentally disagree with their overall uh, perspective. And I think his suspicion uh, was kind of bordering, in my view, on paranoia, because I think in his mind, he thought, I think, that the foreign policy establishment, that the so-called experts in the department, were really out to undermine his government, uh, were really out to, to, to ensure that he failed. And because of that, he, he largely isolated himself 
um, from from the expertise and the knowledge that was uh, contained in the department, and I think it was to his own to his own detriment. But I think he just held some very deep suspicions about the bureaucracy, and for him, it wasn't about getting advice uh, from uh, the foreign policy establishment because he already knew what he wanted to do. It was about him trying to get the bureaucracy to carry out what he thought were the uh, core foreign policy objectives of his conservative government. The Harper government was, however, very supportive of Canada's mission in Afghanistan, something which he inherited. Um, but as you point out, the support dissipated over time as the war dragged on and as the casualties mounted. Now, given his government's earlier promises and support, how did he actually survive the decision to abandon the mission entirely by 2014? First off, I think it's important to realize that, that um, Harper going in uh, initially after he became prime minister uh, was fairly gung-ho about the mission in Afghanistan. And I think that was closely linked to his notion of bolstering the Canadian Armed Forces um, and strengthening the Canadian Armed Forces and his idea that we needed to get away from this notion of international peacekeeping and we, we need to recognize that uh, Canada has a history of, of war fighting and engagement at wars, and we shouldn't shy away from that. And I think, I think in part, I, I argue that that was a sop to the to the base of the Conservative Party that he he he, he wanted to project this notion of Canada as a warrior nation, and so the means to do that, the instrument of doing that, had to be the Canadian Armed Forces, and therefore they needed to show their stuff. Um, on the battlefield in Afghanistan. So he was very gung-ho. But I think over time, he came to realize smartly uh, that, you know, the Taliban wasn't going anywhere and that they were going to be there for a very long time and that the NATO, the NATO mission uh, essentially was going to be doomed and it would not be successful. And once he realized that, uh, at least he had the sense to change course and did so. And I think at the same time, it also served his political interest because I think the Canadian public was growing increasingly tired of the number of Canadians that were dying on the battlefield in Afghanistan. So there was definitely an electoral and a political component to that. And what I think helped him, Greg, was the fact that the opposition parties were also anxious to get out of Afghanistan. And it, once he realized that, you know, this was, this was a, a political loser for me um, and that I, I needed to get out of Afghanistan, and once he realized he wasn't going to play a political price for that, he understood that the opposition parties were on the same page. So he knew that the opposition parties were not going to use his withdrawal from, from Afghanistan against him in the next election campaign, uh, which they didn't. And, and so I think he pieced it together, figured it out, and understood that I'm not going to play a, a, pay a political price for getting out of Afghanistan. In fact, I'm going to play a, pay a political price if I continue to fight a war that's unwinnable. So moving from war, which is one of the oldest foreign policy domains, to one of the newest, which is climate change, I'm interested in the fact that global climate 
change policy, at least as negotiated and defined in multilateral fora, was heavily resisted by the Harper government. And what I'd like to know from you and your co-authors is what really drove this position? Was it on the one hand ideology or on the other hand electoral considerations? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's probably a bit of both. Um, I, I think it's pretty obvious that Stephen Harper from the get-go uh, didn't take climate change very seriously. Um, and in fact, if you look at the record, the record basically indicates that Canada was more obstructionist than anything else in international fora that dealt with international climate change uh, policy. And I, you know, it's hard not to argue that he was thinking specifically about the Western provinces and the oil producing provinces and the damage that he, in his view, in his view, um, you know, that, that seriously putting into place uh, an, a carbon emissions re reduction program is, is going to impose significant economic costs on provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan. And if you look at those provinces in terms of their voting records, they're primarily historically have voted conservative and, and, and are very much a key part of the, the conservative party base. So I think from his standpoint, I mean, he, he was essentially saying, look, I'm not going to stick my political neck out uh, to reduce emissions when, when Canada produces two or three percent of those emissions and you're having difficulty getting agreement from some of the larger polluters like the United States and China. Um, I mean, those were his arguments. I think they're weak and unconvincing arguments. But I, I, I so I think ideology was 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 definitely a factor. Um, and but I also think more importantly was the domestic political calculations that Harper was making and saying, look, I'm not going to put into place policies and uh, programs that are going to hurt my base. Um, I'm not going to, to ask the premiers of Alberta and Saskatchewan to, to pay a huge price and then expect them to support me and the people of those provinces to support me in any federal election campaigns that I have going forward. So I, it, it seemed to me that it was just raw politics. You know, I think, you know, sure, he... he probably disagreed with the science or, or, or took issue with it or didn't want to believe that it was uh, credible. But I think for him, everything was about politics and re-election. Everything was about a permanent election campaign. He was always in election mode. Every decision that he made, in my view, had to be seen through the prism of how is it going to play to the base? How is it going to help me secure votes? How is it going to uh, expand the tent for the Conservative Party? How is it going to enable me to hold on to power? That's how he saw politics. That's how he saw international politics. That's how he saw climate change policy. That's how he saw Canadian foreign policy. So for him, it was, it was pretty simple. I, I'm not going to hurt imposed costs uh, on the people that I think I need to vote for me in the next election campaign. Now, he did focus uh, like a laser beam on Canada-U.S. relations. Can you describe the party's official position um, in terms of its rhetoric and its platforms and compare that to how things actually evolved in practice while in government? 
And how did this whole issue of Canada-U.S. relations influence the Harper's government's uh, policies on Latin America and the Caribbean? I think it's, it, 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 to me, it was fascinating to, uh, I teach a course on Canada-U.S. relations, so I was, I was familiar with the terrain. Dwayne Bratt wrote the chapter, and it was, it was a very, it was an excellent chapter. He, he did some very good research, some good work there. Um, and what I found interesting was this kind of evolution or metamorphosis of Harper's approach to Canada-U.S. relations, because I think his first inclination was, um, you know, that this is our most important relationship, bar none. This is our most important strategic and military ally. And more importantly, in Harper's view, this is our most important customer. Um, and so we, we need to have a very strong uh, uh, relationship, prosperous relationship, uh, positive relationship with the United States. And I think um, he, he clearly set out to do that. Um, but he was also mindful of the fact that he, he couldn't be perceived as being too close to the United States or too cozy to the United States. So I think when you when you actually look back at that that 2006 campaign, what was interesting was he he actually started off the campaign by saying that you know he wasn't going to accept the U.S. position on the Arctic and particularly the Northwest Passage as being an international strait. In fact, that he, he was arguing that it was well within Canadian waters. And it was odd at the time because it seemed to come out of nowhere and the U.S. ambassador at the time was perplexed and didn't understand it. But I think he was playing politics there. He understood that a Canadian prime minister needs to show independence uh, and autonomy uh, and, sovereign, and defend Canadian sovereignty, particularly in the Arctic. And so I think he wanted to put he wanted to put to rest any arguments that he was going to be deferential to to to, to the United States, and, and he also demonstrated that with respect to ballistic missile defense, which I, th I think angered the Bush, the George W. Bush administration in the, in, uh, in 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 the early two thousands, where he wouldn't commit uh, after after uh, securing power in two thousand six, he wouldn't commit to Canada's direct participation in ballistic missile defense, and so that. So that I think angered the Bush administration, but for the most part, if, if prior to coming to power, if, you may recall that uh, you know the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, uh, Harper was quick out of the out of the door uh, to, to 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 say that he supported the United States and, and stood shoulder to shoulder with the United States, and I think that did not go over well with the Canadian population, and I think Harper remembered that, filed that away, and said that's a political no-no. So I think his statement on ballistic missile offense and also on Arctic sovereignty were designed to send a message to the voting public that he's not going to be a lackey of the, the United States. Having said that, for the most part, I think he was clearly aligned with the United States. He was uh, on the same page in, in terms of most of the uh, policies that were coming out of the Bush administration. And I think also initially with the uh, Obama administration. Uh, and I, I think that was short-lived. I think obviously there were some issues there around the Keystone XL pipeline, um, where, again, I think Harper took a position which was at variance with the Obama administration on the pipeline, uh, which, where, where they wouldn't offer the permit to allow the pipeline and the, and the, uh, the oil to, 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 to be exported 
uh, across the the boundary between the border between Canada and the United States. And so, obviously, you know, Harper's going to defend Alberta and the, and the interest of the oil patch and the workers there and and the importance of of, of oil extraction to the to the Alberta economy and to his political base. So he had to take on Obama on that issue, and I think I think that really poisoned the. The relationship between uh, himself and President Obama, because he made statements that, to the effect that, look, you know, the United States needs to approve this because it's a no-brainer, um, and you know, you know, we're not going to take no for an answer, as as John Baird said, as for, foreign minister in Washington, and I can tell you that that wasn't well received uh, with, with within the White House, um, and so I think there was a a rift there that developed between. Between Stephen Harper um, and uh, uh, Barack Obama, to the point where I was told by somebody in Washington that um, he he was not on the list of calls uh, that 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 President Obama would make when he was doing the rounds to try to uh, to consult with world leaders and to indicate the direction in which U.S. US foreign policy was going. That Stephen Harper what wasn't part of the group. That 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 were that was often part of the uh, was on the list of foreign leaders to be to be to be called, and so it was pretty obvious that. And at the end of it, there you, you may even recall that Bruce Heyman, who was the U.S. ambassador to Canada, w w was essentially persona non grata under the the Harper government. Members of the cabinet were told expressly not to not to talk to him, not to consult with him, not to meet with him in any way, shape, or form that he was to be shunned by the Canadian government. So I think it started out well, uh, and I, I, I think it deteriorated pretty quickly over over one really key issue, which was Keystone XL, though there were other differences on Israel and on uh, Iran's nuclear program uh, as, as well, and of course, international climate change. But I think it was the, the Keystone XL issue which which really sort of poisoned the well, I think, between Harper and Obama and the Canada-U.S. relationship. In terms of the Americas, I think, and I commend Stephen Harper for this because I think it was an excellent initiative. Uh, it, he didn't follow it up uh, sufficiently, and he, and he didn't put any additional resources or staffing uh, to, to implement the, the Americas initiative. But I, but I, but I think he should be commended for, for, for developing it and for, uh, and for making it a priority in his government. But I think what's interesting, Greg, is one of the reasons why I think he took on the Americas was it, he wanted to differentiate the conservative party from the liberal party. And I, and I think one way of doing that, the, 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 the scuttlebutt was that the liberals like to focus on Africa. And like to like to uh, to to allocate Canadian international development resources and aid to, to to the African continent, and and the way Harper was thinking was I don't get reelected on being like a liberal, I don't get reelected on doing uh, looking like a liberal and maintaining liberal policies. So he 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 just decided that I needed to put some different distinction and difference between myself. And, and, and some space with the Federal Liberal Party and to undermine the Federal Liberal Party. So I'm going to focus on the, the Americas, uh, which interestingly enough also was something that's, that, that Brian Mulroney had previously focused on in terms of the organization of American states. But the problem was that Harper didn't follow it up. He was interested in the trade side, 
but he wasn't interested in using the organization of American states or focusing on other key issues um, in the hemisphere. But in his mind, just to, 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 to tie it back into Canada-U.S. relations, his argument was that if we can make ourselves useful to the United States in the Americas, in the hemisphere, in Latin America and the Caribbean, that will be a useful in for us with the United States and, and whoever the president who occupies the, the White House. We will, we will be useful to them and they will be useful to us in terms of supporting Canadian objectives vis-a-vis -vis Washington. Right. So what was Harper's uh, policy towards Russia and did his government's policies differ from previous liberal administrations under Prime Ministers Kretchen and Martin. In particular, I'm thinking about two issues, Arctic sovereignty and the Ukraine question, but feel free to raise others. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, to, to simplify things, it was, it was a hard line approach um, towards Russia. Um, and I, I think that's consistent with his worldview. You know, in Harper's mind, he, saw, he sort of divided up the world sort of white hats and black hats, um, you know, and the white hats were the good folks and the black hats were the bad folks. And there were clearly certain countries that fell into that black hats category and Russia was definitely uh, one of them. So I think, you know, he was always suspicious of Russia, Russia didn't think much of, of Putin, you know, he thought he was a, you know, a, a, a dictator, ruthless uh, dictator, uh, who, who, who would not be of much assistance to the West uh, and would always pose a, a, a security threat and a challenge. And, and so he took a hard line on, on Russian involvement in the Arctic. Um, any, any sort of uh, initiative that the Russians were taking uh, in the Arctic, uh, even though they had their own legitimate uh, interest in the Arctic, uh, from a from a military and a strategic standpoint, they were always viewed in a negative light um, and as a, posing some sort of either a challenge to the uh, to, 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 to to Canadian uh, security or or sovereignty or posing uh, a challenge to, to 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 the United States. So it was oftentimes seen in a negative light and of course uh, Putin's intervention in Ukraine, uh, in 2014 and Crimea, uh, the, the, the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, I think also just reinforced Harper's negative perception of, of, of Russia and, and particularly under, under Putin's leadership. And, and if you remember, there was that sort of famous engagement uh, that, that took place at, uh, I can't remember if it was one of the G20 or, or at the G8 meetings, uh, where, where, uh, Stephen Harper confronted, uh, Vladimir Putin. And as he was shaking his hands, saying something to the effect, you need to get out of Crimea. Um, and, and you know, I think that spoke volumes about the nature of the relationship. So, so, but, but, but I think what was underscoring that, at least I think what, what we tried to argue in the in the collection in the Harper collection was that I think Harper saw that as a political winner. I think as taking a hard line on 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 Russia, uh, and and also I think he was he was thinking about those 1.3 million Ukrainian voters um, and and keeping those squarely within the 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 conservative party 
uh, ledger. Um, and I, I think, again, it, it's about uh, adopting a policy that I think will be helpful to me in terms of my re-election campaign. And, and so I think, yes, you could argue there were legitimate reasons to back Ukraine, uh, even though there were there were some that had suspicions and still do, which explains why uh, Ukraine is today is not a member of NATO. But but I think that Harper saw it more in terms of domestic politics and was was looking at how it would play in terms of uh, securing his re-election campaigns as opposed to whether or not this served uh, broader Canadian foreign policy objectives. And what about uh, Canada's relationship with the People's Republic of China under the Harper administration? Did it change? Yes, very complicated. Um, if you remember, Greg, at first, um, and Peter McKay w was, was sort of carrying the can on this, I mean, they took a very anti-China perspective um, you know, accusing China of spying and interference in Canada, um, raising serious questions about human rights situation, uh, the human rights situation in, in, in China. And also, if you remember, uh, Stephen Harper had that, 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 that telling, I think, and, and very illustrative statement where he said, I'm not going to be, uh, uh, looking at China, um, in terms of chasing the almighty dollar. Um, which, which to me, the translation there was, uh, I, I'm not going to bow to just pure economic interests when it comes to China. We're we going to focus on principled issues. We're going to we're we going to focus on moral issues. We're we're going to focus on issues of human rights. And so, for the first few years uh, of the Harper government, it was uh, I mean the contact between China was pretty slim. I mean, um, and and certainly the the approach that they took was we're not interested in engaging with the China and we're, with China and with the Chinese in Beijing, and we're not interested in strengthening and enhancing, enhancing and deepening the the relationship between between China and Canada. But I think what changed was, I think, a couple of things. Um, probably the realization that China was going to be one of the premier economies in the world, um, and that you know trade between Canada and China could be profitable um, for for the Canadian business community. And I, I think he 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 did start to see the dollar signs. He he did side he did seem to realize and recognize the importance of the Chinese market uh, in terms of expanding trade between Canada and China. So I think that drove the change, um, the, 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 the adjustment, the transformation, I think, that took place under Stephen Harper, um, away from sort of this, again, ideological, their communists, uh, that sort of perspective, that hard, hardline approach, softened to look at them more as capitalists, as, as a, a potentially growing economic market um, for Canada. And I think that was important for him. And so he started to reach out and engage with China and to find and, and to try to create a more positive, fruitful, constructive relationship with the Chinese on, on which he, we, that Canada could strengthen its trading relationship. So I think that was important. But I also think and um, you know, it's 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 not played up a lot in the in 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 the text. Um, and uh, uh, is is the importance of the Chinese Canadian vote, um, particularly on the West Coast. 
um, in British Columbia and, and other parts of Canada, but I think primarily in the in, in British Columbia, that I think that the that, that the conservatives were anxious to secure that Chinese Canadian vote, um, and and I think by strengthening the relationship with China, I think that there that I think he believed that. Uh, and Jason Kenney was, as the immigration minister, was sent out to try to cultivate that uh, that group, uh, the Chinese Canadian community, particularly on the West Coast. I think he saw that as being very instructive um, in terms of gaining seats in, uh, in in British Columbia and enabling him to secure his uh, majority government or at least stay stay in power. And I think just as one final point, Greg, is that. You know, recently there's been some discussion about this with respect to uh, the the 2021 election, um, and 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 the conservatives have said publicly, and Aaron O'Toole, when he was when he was leader of the party, has said this that they think that they lost a couple of seats in British Columbia because the the, the Chinese government interfered in Canada, interfered in the election. Um, to turn off Chinese Canadian voters away from the Conservative Party. So it, it is interesting to think that the, they, they even acknowledge it now publicly um, that the, that Canada-China relationship is important, I think, in, in, in terms of it's a, it's a vote winner for them within the, within the Chinese Canadian community and in terms of the Conservative Party securing election victories. Right. Well, Peter, I could ask you many other questions about other attributes of the policy, but I'm forced now to uh, ask you to just answer a very broad question, perhaps, and a speculative question. But in your opinion, do you think that Canada's position in the world was enhanced or ultimately diminished by the Harper government? I thought about that question long and hard, and uh, you know, here's what I can tell you: um, when when I conducted the interviews with a number of uh, former Canadian diplomats, some senior, um, some still within the government, some who had left the government recently, you know, the consensus was that it harmed it. That. Um, it was damaging to Canadian foreign policy um, because in some respects, Canada didn't buy into, under the Harper government, didn't buy into multilateralism um, and didn't buy into diplomacy. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're a small to middling power, uh, you're just not in a position to change the behavior and conduct of other states. You need to work in concert with other like-minded countries you need multilateral fora like the OAS and the United Nations. And, and Harper intensely disliked those institutions and those organizations. And I think that hurt. And I think it hurt. I think that was manifested in the fact that we lost our attempt to secure a rotating seat on the Security Council in 2010 at the United Nations. And I think part of the reason why we lost out on that was because I think countries around the world uh, thought that Canada was disengaging uh, from international politics and were, were not happy about some of the positions that Canada was taking, um, particularly on, on, on climate change, for instance. And I think, you know, there was also an abrasive side to uh, 
to Harper's foreign policy, um, uh, where it was off-putting to countries and other officials and other diplomats. I heard this over and over again that, you know, that there was this sort of, uh, as I said, sort of rough and tumble and and uh, I won't say bullying because that's too strong a word, but there was a sort of an abrasive nature and an obstructionist nature to it, um, where instead of working with other countries, um, we were working against them. And, it, and it, it, it befuddled a number of other countries who weren't used to that, who had known Canada and previous governments um, as trying to work within the confines of multilateral institutions to try to secure and enhance uh, and obtain uh, Canadian foreign policy objectives. And so I think overall, just in a word, I, I think it was damaging and harmful to Canada's presence on the international stage and to the conduct of Canadian foreign policy. Well, Peter, I want to thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me. My guest today was Peter McKenna, editor of Harper's World, The Politicization of Canadian Foreign Policy, 2006-2015, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This particular podcast on Canadian political history was sponsored by Mr. Don Bouchois and Ms. Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario, in honor of their parents, Jean-Marie and Mary Bouchois, and Aloysius and Regina Campbell, who instilled in their children a passion for all of Canada and for its political history. Thank you. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on February 8th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Music